Welcome to Ridgewood Talks. Through this podcast, we will be introducing you to some of the leaders and legends in our village. We'll keep you updated about fascinating local events, and we'll dig into the town's hot topics and so much more. But first, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeannie Johnson, the founder of Ridgewood Talks and Ridgewood Walks. The goal of these initiatives is to create a kinder, more connected, and more vibrant community. I'm thrilled to be co-hosting this podcast with my good friend and all-around wonderful guy, Jordan Kaufman. We look forward to meeting with you weekly and hearing your thoughts on who and what you'd like to learn about in our beautiful hometown. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to Ridgewood Talks. Today, we have a wonderful guest who is going to help us sort of navigate these stressful days of the holiday season. So I am going to introduce right now Michael Tazzoli, who is the CEO of West Bergen Mental Health Center. And Jordan, since you are on the board of West Bergen Mental Health Center, I am going to throw this to you and you can do a more formal introduction of this incredible person who we have living in our community. Yeah, no, thanks, Jeannie and Michael. Obviously, thank you for uh, for coming on the show. If I'm correct, you've been the CEO for West Bergen for about 17 years now. Is that correct? That sounds about right. Yes, it does. Yeah. So you've been around the block. Uh, you know, you know a decent amount, and that's 17 years of West Bergen's 60 years in existence as of 2023. So you guys have an exciting year next year celebrating your 60th anniversary. I'm a huge fan of you guys being in the town. I love your guys' presence in the town and all you do for the town. And that's hopefully something we'd like to talk a little bit about today. I also want to give you a big round of applause for your monthly column in Ridgewood Living Magazine, which I'm also a huge fan of. If if you receive uh, Ridgewood Living Magazine, for those uh, of our listeners, there is a little section about a half a page where Wes Bergen has some of Michael Tazzoli's thoughts for the month that are in there. And it's always uh, great to see those. So thank you so much, Michael, for providing those. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot we want to talk about today. We're going to try to shove it in uh, in the amount of time we have. What I think the first thing we really want to talk about just to kick it off is uh, a lot of our listeners, myself, constituents, we see these stigma-free signs and we hear this comment stigma-free. I'm not sure everyone knows exactly what that means or how that came about. So would you do us a favor and just tell us a little bit about stigma-free, how it came about and what it really encapsulates? Absolutely. Thank you, by the way, both of you for having having me here today. Um, I particularly appreciate it because um, it would not have been that many years ago that we would have never had this kind of conversation in public, right? Mental health would have been hidden. It would have been in the shadows. We just wouldn't have done it. So kudos to you both for uh, putting forward a, a topic that's uh, just really, really important, both to my heart and, and I think really to the community. Stigma-free, really great question. We see a lot of these green signs around every single town in Bergen County is formally now stigma-free. And um, really what that approaches or, or tries to do is to break down stigma around mental health. One way of doing that is to have a podcast about the entirety of, of mental health and sort of what that's about. So this unto itself 
um, is a step toward breaking down stigma. Stigma is really that um, those feelings that come up for us when we think about mental health, right away a feeling that comes to my mind is shame, embarrassment, awkwardness, those things that stop people from reaching out for help. And so we know that, for example, statistically, we know that probably one in five folks um, that actually have a diagnosable mental illness will reach out for help. So that that leaves a gigantic, gigantic pool of people that are that are really struggling. And the reason they're struggling is because they're embarrassed, because there's shame, and because there's all kinds of things that that get in the way. And so the stigma-free initiative tries to break those things down: having conversation, talking to your neighbors being open about what goes on, being more open that mental health exists and it's really out there um, in our community. And, and since this is a village uh, of Ridgewood, um, Chad, I can use this example. We're, we're proudly West Bergen Mental Health Care over on Chestnut Street. We're over at 120 Chestnut. We've been there for, gosh, I, I think that West Bergen's been here certainly way before me, 30 years, maybe 35. And this big selling feature when the realtor went to show the then board of trustees around for a building in Ridgewood was that this building was hidden by the tracks and hidden behind the power lines. It was perfect because your neighbors wouldn't see you, your friends wouldn't see you. You actually didn't have to think about um, being public about um, being uh, uh, going to a mental health center or being part of, of going to counseling. So I always laugh about that in many ways. It's, it's an illustration of how intense stigma was that that was the, yeah, this is the building for us. You cannot be seen going into West Bergamo Mental Healthcare. This is so exciting. Um, board bought the building. We grew into it. Very proud to say that in the last couple of years, we have acquired the building right on Chestnut Street. Many people may know it as the building on stilts, kind of near the Y on Chestnut Street. I'm so proud of that building because, boy, is it on the street. <laughs> it is. It is right on the street, right out front. Um, we're uh, in the spring going to redo signage, and it will be very clear that West Bergen Mental Health Care and mental health treatment is right on the street in Ridgewood. Yeah, no, I think that that's fantastic. And congratulations for that building and doing the renovation. And you were kind enough to have the last West Bergen board meeting. Mm. So it was great to uh, have a chance to look at it. There were some exciting things. Unfortunately, I don't know if we're going to have time to get to all the exciting yeah. things on that particular so building. Come to our open house in the spring. Why don't we leave it at that, right? We'll, we'll do an open house <laughs> and we're going to make sure to, to invite the community because we really want them to come. In some ways, it's breaking down stigma. If you walk into our hallways and think, wow, this looks pretty warm. Wow, this looks very livable. This looks okay. I, I can see myself being here. That alone will break down stigma. So, But that, that actually brings us to the next topic, which we're hoping to address, which is it's the holidays. Uh, I learned from you that the holidays are actually one of the most stress-inducing times for folks. It's a time when calls go up for mental health needs. It's a time when some of the more challenging mental health stresses come about. I'd love to get a little bit of your thoughts on the issue around the holidays, dealing with pressure around the holidays, just kind of generally, right? The winter being colder, being a little mm. bit more dull, the less sunlight, all those things. Can, can you just tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're seeing right now, some of the things that are particularly apt for this time of year, how people should be addressing this stress, this pressure. Yeah, fair point. Uh, holidays are really stressful on people. I think there's a lot of excitement and a lot of warmth and a lot of hopefully um, good feelings associated with it, but it also can be very, very stressful. 
Um, and, and I think of it kind of on two levels. Um, one, and, I, and this I have to say, I took directly from a client a number of years ago who I was seeing, who came into my office and she said, you know, during the holidays, when I'm, if I'm having an okay day, let's say it's a six out of 10, I'm having a 6.5 day, a 7.5 day, which is pretty good. It's an okay average day. But during the holidays, given the lights and given the intensity and given the socialization, I feel like I should be having a nine or a 9.5. And so therefore, I feel like everyone around me is having a wonderful time and really excited and really positive. And even if I'm just having an okay day, I feel like I'm sort of depressed or, or sad or, or kind of down. Um, and I always remember that client and grateful for, for that uh, in, in the out of the mouths of babes, right? And when you're, when you're in treatment and your clients teach you as much as you teach them. The, the, really, the second thing that we see around holidays are a lot of social interactions. So uh, sometimes social interactions that could be difficult. We tend to see family members that sometimes we may have challenging relationships with, right? We, we sort of all joke about the in-laws and we joke about the, co you know, cousin Frank and, and, you know, but during the holidays, you really are in many ways, there's a social obligation and expectation that you're going to spend time with people that maybe can be challenging to you emotionally. And that may trigger, and I don't over use that word because I, I think it's a pretty commonly used word now. Um, but during the holidays, I, I think that can be lots of things that, that can bring anxiety, stress, depression up. You point to the, the lack of sunlight. The, the research is very clear that that's a fact, that, that the less sunlight that there is, the harder it is for people. In fact, one of the suggestions we make, and I, I'm sorry to say this, but even if it's eight degrees, I'm going to ask you to go outside and take a walk for about 20 minutes a day. Um, even if it's winter, even if it's January, even if it's December 23rd, <laughs> as you prepare to sort of go, go into those tight social interactions, 20 minutes of sunlight a day makes a difference in our brains and it makes a difference in our bodies. And that's a fact. So um, as hard as that is, I, I push everyone to do that. We can certainly at another time do a whole show on seasonal affective disorder and that that entirety of, of that diagnosis. But well, well, now, you're, hit, you're hitting Jeannie's heartstrings because when she's not talking, she's walking. So <laughs> yeah, all right, there you go. Absolutely. walks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm all about it, Jeannie. You are a mental health provider without knowing that that's one of the one of the things that that's really that will help us. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it like that. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, calls are up intensity's up, the kids are challenged, families are challenged. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on a, on a mental health center and on the on the behavioral health system overall, not just West Bergen, but all our, our wonderful partner private practitioners in the area and, and other agencies. But I'll tell you, and, and um, maybe I shouldn't say this in front of a board member, but we are actually open on Monday, December 26th. We do not close, even though Christmas is on Sunday. We do not take that Monday off. The agency will be fully open because we want to be here. We want to be available for our clients. We want to be here because we know that this can be a challenging time of year. So we don't take our vacations or, or shut the agency down in, in quite the way that uh, maybe another business might. You know, Christmas, for example, this year is falling on a Sunday. Many businesses are going to default and close on Monday. West Bergen Mental Health Care will be open at nine o'clock on Monday morning, the 26th. Yeah, I don't know if that's great or, or not. <laughs> I'll take it as a great though. I, I, I think there's something interesting that West Bergen implemented that it was kind of during, and, and I know we're all getting tired of talking about things that have arisen from, from COVID, 
Um, but I think it was a really special thing that you put together, which was a crisis prevention effort, mm -hmm. uh, seeing the stress and pressure that the first responders had, and then really recognizing that that same kind of stress and pressure existed on teachers as well. I'll let you talk about the crisis prevention uh, mm -hmm. for, for a second and just tell us a little bit about what the organization did. And then I want to touch a little bit on what to do in the event of a crisis. So okay. let, let's start with the crisis prevention, though, because sure. I think if we can, we want to prevent. And, and what are some of the efforts you put in into play there? Great question. And, and really from a 10,000 point view, really a 5,000 point view, West Bergamo Healthcare has been been in the village for 60 years almost, right? One more month and we'll be in the village 60 years. And we, I think, have done an amazing job at creating more than 20 different specialty programs that help people that are really struggling, depression, anxiety, autism, Asperger's, ADHD. We have, we have wonderful therapists that sit in teams and they do amazing work. It was probably about four to five years ago, pre-COVID, that we as an organization started to reflect philosophically very much on, we get that we do it really well when people are struggling. What is our ethical, our moral responsibility to prevent, getting back to the stigma question, right? What is our ethical and moral obligation as an organization to think about prevention? How can we prevent this, these numbers, these statistics, these these number of people that are really struggling. So with that mindset, COVID happens. And you're you're right. We opened what we call the warm line. We call it a warm line, actually, as opposed to a hotline, because we cannot guarantee that you will get someone at the moment, but we do guarantee that you will speak to someone today, the same day. We actually guarantee within two hours. So um, that's why it's a warm line and not a hotline. Started with healthcare workers. So we initially launched it with anyone involved with healthcare, emergency room, hospital, doctors, nurses, EMTs, all that kind of stuff. Anyone that was involved in that system. With our strong and, and still building relationship with schools, we pretty quickly figured out that educators, teachers, all kinds, and when I say educator, I don't just mean teachers, I mean anyone that is involved in the education of, of children, were really struggling as well. So we opened a warm line for them, and then the calls began, and they were feeling overwhelmed, they were feeling stressed, they were feeling all kinds of feelings, many of which we were all experiencing as well. Um, but we really worked to try to work with them through a warm line process so that we could essentially kind of grossly boil down, put small fires out, right? Small fires are much easier to put out than big fires. And we know that from both a public health point of view, if you put that lens on, and we know that just from a human point of view, you know this in your own life, right? The sooner that we kind of get on that leak that's dripping over the kitchen sink, eh, if we put that off for four or five months, it's going to be much more than a little leak under the kitchen sink. So same philosophy. What can we do? We did it. Warm line. Um, it exists today. Um, we still have the warm line for our education community. Um, and it's really gets calls and um, goes in ebbs and flows. It tends to get calls at the beginning of the academic year around the holidays, right, as, as per our earlier conversation, and then um, winter and then kind of as the year is, is petering out. So it's been a very interesting process and one that we've actually learned a tremendous amount from. Because you brought it up, um, um, because it's one of the things that I feel very passionately about that West Bergen does. Um, you brought up your schools program. Share how many schools are uh, right now West Bergen helps so, provide resources to and also a, a little bit of an idea of what the impact of those resources has been and what the response from the schools have been uh, over time as those contracts have come up from renewal or, or mm -hmm. anything else. Um, if you could absolutely. share a little bit of that. 
Sure. So as of today, we have 14 signed contracts with districts where there is a West Bergen therapist in a school building. Um, they look like they belong to the school district. They have an office that looks like they belong to the school district, but they are a West Bergen employee. They are exclusively and specifically designed to deal with mental health. They are not guidance. They don't, sorry to say, they don't care what classes the kids are taking. They don't care where they're going to college. They don't care about applications. And with all due respect to our, thank God for our guidance counselors or none of our kids would <laughs> get into college. Um, but these individuals are strictly about mental health. So, and, and it's really very much taking our earlier philosophy of, of early prevention and pushing it into the school system. So it's about having kids come in that are struggling with uh, school anxiety, with depression, with sadness, with families that may have had a traumatic death or an un unexpected um, situation in their home. And every one of the 14 districts, which I'm very, very proud of, everyone looks different. So every program looks different. Some school districts, the West Bergen therapist does groups all day. And there's groups of kids that come in and, and kind of social skills and others. Other districts, it's very individually focused where there's an individual session that happens over and over and over again um, as we kind of put fires out and make sure that that kids um, focus on, on education. It was, I think, for some time kind of a philosophical quandary for schools because schools up until a number of years ago were very much focused, and they should be, we are the educators. This is what we do. Our job, our philosophy, our core mission as a school is to educate our kids not to worry about their mental health. But they started to see that mental health was absolutely getting in the way of their primary mission. And so we started to develop partnerships. Um, we started to develop conversations with lots of superintendents. And so today, I'm really proud of, of that program that continues to grow. Other elements of what we do for schools, and, and this is a hard one. It's one that probably most people don't really know about. Pulling the, the curtain behind, uh, right? Pulling up the curtain a little bit for folks. West Bergen, for many more districts than 14, does risk assessments for kids every single day. So there'll be a child that will be in a school. Um, the child might either on social media or in conversation say something that becomes concerning to a teacher or to anyone in the school district. I'm going to kill you or I can't take this anymore. I cannot take this anymore. I'm going to dot, dot, dot. When that happens, um, school districts have a very specific process um, where they reach out to us we pull the child and the parent, by the way, and whatever whatever that definition of family is, and whatever that definition of parent is, they're brought into West Bergen, um, and they're done. An assessment is done just to make sure that they are not suicidal or other other kind of significant um, mental health issues. The way the rules work in in New Jersey, it's kind of interesting. They are not able to go back on the grounds of the school until they get a letter from us that says, I've assessed this child. And at this time, he is not suicidal. He or she is not suicidal or homicidal. Um, very interesting process. We started with a handful. There is not one day that goes by West Bergen Mental Health Care. Over the 180 days in a public school system, there's not one day that goes by where we don't do multiple clearances. It happens every single day. And so that becomes kind of a dialogue conversation. It's really that process and that number continuing to grow is what got us to philosophically say, all right, wait, 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 wait. We've done 15 suicidal assessments for kids at X school. What can we do better, more effectively, quicker, sooner in a preventative way? And that's how the school-based services was born. Um, it came out of those stats that were, frankly, to me as a CEO, scary um, that those numbers continue to go up and up and up. I think as a parent and as a, as a you know, just member in a community, those numbers 
are scary. I think that that though feeds into that prevention aspect that the organization is involved with. It's, you know, the main goal is to make sure that something doesn't unravel and become a major issue. The unfortunate thing is sometimes it does. And this, I think, is one of the unspoken gems of the organization because there's rules around, you know, how much communication there can be. But this just speaks to the soul, I think, of the organization, which is when there is a crisis, how they respond or how you personally respond even. I'm wondering if if in the, without uh, naming any names or divulging anything, you could talk a little bit about when there is a crisis or something is identified, what are some of those steps that the organization does to help, as well as what can people generally do to help, you know, as they start to see a situation? I mean, what are some of the things that we can do as we start to see the sweater become unraveled? Mm, great question. And you're right. They're, they're, um, we're so proud of the programs here at West Bergen, and, and we're so proud of the work that we do. There are some programs and some things that we do that you would not be able to read about our on our website, that we cannot hand you a pamphlet. There is no written information. We just do it because it's the, the right thing to do, both from a kind of a moral and ethical point of view. And one of them is we do respond to families in the surrounding communities that have had a traumatic death. And so um, you're right that I've done it myself. Other clinicians have done it as well, um, where there has been a traumatic and unexpected death usually is what, what it's around. It typically is not a hospice situation or a kind of a gradual landing. It tends to be a a traumatic death in, in many circumstances, our niche has been suicide. So we've responded to families that have had a an unexpected, as most of them are, um, suicide in, in the community. And we have, you're, you're quite correct, Jordan, we have literally sat at folks' kitchen table within hours, and I mean hours with a single digit, two hours, three hours um, of, of a notification, and tried to help a family put themselves into a certain place where they can handle the next few hours, the next few minutes, the next few hours, the next few days, and sort of get them on a trajectory. Um, it can be an accident. It can be all kinds of other other issues as well. Um, but it's something that we do. We do it proudly. We do it. Um, I'm going to self critique here and say we do it probably too quietly because we just do it. <laughs> we don't we don't really talk about it. We don't really celebrate it. We don't because it's it's a hard time. It tends it's not not something to be celebrated. It's it's a moment where you're being brought into a family member's home in the most intimate of moments, literally in the most intimate of moments. And um, it's a, it's something that I and we at West Bergen take incredibly seriously. And it's something that we take um, with a lot of heart and a lot of head. And uh, we think a lot about our process and we think a lot about what we can do and, and what we can do better um, in those situations. What can you do? Lots of talk of late about, about suicide, particularly in the news, right? We've had, we've had a very prominent figure twitch from the Ellen DeGeneres show died of suicide. Um, by the way, we don't use the word commit anymore. We now say we've, uh, an individual has died of suicide. Um, he died of suicide a, about a week ago. I, I had this question once posed to me and I loved it. What is the one takeaway if you listen to a talk and you're concerned about someone with suicidality or someone that you think may be wanting to hurt themselves or even thinking about it? The one's one fact that I would want everyone to hear over and over and over again is that the statistics show us that asking you whether you've been thinking about hurting yourself 
or whether you've, you're considering that, does not plant a seed. People have this concern that they think like, oh, I better not ask because if he or she wasn't thinking about it before, now they will be. In fact, the statistics and the data shows us it's utterly the opposite. Um, most people will, will say yes or no. They'll usually be quite honest. And then if the answer is yes, then we have a certain number of steps that, that we put into place. But if you have a concern about someone, certainly ask. And I, and, and I know that's not so easy to do. I get it. Um, but it's important to do and it's not going to hurt the person at all. In fact, the statistics show us it's quite the opposite. You are increasing your reach at schools for students and teachers and parents. And at one point you mentioned to me the highest demographic of people who go without treatment, who are really most unwilling to share their mental health struggles is males. And what group is that? Yes. So two, two things come to my mind there. First, um, as per our earlier conversation, the, the fastest growing demographic of people that complete suicide are men between the ages of 40 and 59. So they're in that and they they tend to complete um, as opposed to a suicide attempt. One of the wonderful things, and, and I have to tell you that, that COVID's been really hard. It's been really hard on all of us. It's been really hard on us as an organization. There are some wonderful takeaways that have come out of COVID that have lit up our statistics and lit up our, our sort of work that we do. When COVID happened, we quickly moved to teletherapy. Um, I mean, quickly like overnight. And now at West Bergen Mental Health Care, about 50-50 roughly, about, actually it's about 60-40, 60% of clients are being seen in, in the way that they uh, are on a screen and, and seeing their therapist, 40% um, are seeing in person. The way we handle it at West Bergen, and I know every organization is different, it is completely client choice. So whatever the client wants, we will do. One of the things we notice pretty quickly, I'm going to say within the first 75 days of COVID is that men who were our lowest demographic, that men ages really mid-20s to say mid-50s um, into, into early 60s, they were never our primary client. They were We were not seeing a lot of that in terms of our demographics and our data. And all of a sudden, we started to slowly see that number go up. We were really excited. It was an unexpected, absolutely surprised to us. Um, we were excited about it because remember the earlier statistic, right? So we're, we're approaching now and dealing with the community that we've never been, uh, to use kind of a more of a literacy, that we never been sort of to get to them. We haven't been able to sort of reach them. And now we're suddenly seeing these numbers go up. What we realized was that teletherapy has been helpful to that process, that men in that demographic were simply more comfortable either logging onto a screen or giving their therapist a call at a certain time, right? Very structured, um, but that they were able to be clients and, and come into the client-patient relationship comfortably within the realm of, of teletherapy. And so we were really, and remain very, very excited by that. And I get it. Um, I, I think that again, we, we work really hard at West Bergen to make sure that our buildings are warm and, and that you don't feel like you're at anything that even remotely looks institutional, but you still have to drive to West Bergen Mental Health Care and you still have to pull in the parking lot and you still have to check in at the front desk and you still have to wait at a waiting room and then go down the hall. There's something freeing from a stigma point of view, and I think for men in particular, about being able to log on right here, right now at 6.15 to see their therapist. And so there's kind of pragmatics around that. Exciting, really, really exciting. Because that's a community um, often forgotten and missed. Yeah, sure. that is. I, I'm so relieved to know that. And something that's really interesting to me is why that has always been such a stigma for my generation. I'm very pleased, as you said, that things are turning around now. And what's interesting is this new generation 
um, how they are so open and willing to say, I'm suffering from anxiety, I have uh, depression. And my friend just started a new initiative in London. It's called JAAQ, Jack. And it's just ask a question. It is a social media platform and they just opened up a a little coffee shop in London. It's actually a very large coffee shop in London where they have mental health professionals on staff in the coffee shop. And so I suspect that th- that will grow attraction and it'll end up being a global thing, which I think is absolutely terrific. Um, I want to go back now to the conversation about suicide, because as we said that we just lost Twitch, who I loved so much. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, we've had some questions about, you know, how do people feel when they are at that uh, really dark hour? People Magazine just this last week had an article about Naomi Judd and her Mm -hmm. suicide also. Mm -hmm. And her husband of 30 some years, he said, you know, she it's almost a full time job to be in a relationship with somebody with severe depression. He said he did not want to leave, have her out of his sight. Um, He made sure that she ate, he tried every, you know, he worked very hard to make sure that she slept, that she would have something to look forward to. He said he really pressured her um, to go back out on tour because he wanted to give her something to look forward to. What he recognized was, I should have just been there for her. I should have listened. I should have just let her head sit in my lap and I should have just said, you're okay. Everything is okay. You're going to be fine. And just let her go through that period of darkness. Mm-hmm. So if, if you were to advise somebody who was caretaking for someone or who is a friend of someone who we can see visibly see that their life is, is really unraveling. Um, sometimes I think people that are in a very depressive state, they they're so in such a dark spot that they don't even know themselves how bad they are because they don't see how their behavior is affecting the people around them. So how would you advise loved ones to care for somebody in that state? Jeannie, you're absolutely right that that when they're typically when they're that depressed or or a, a significant amount of depression, they don't see it for themselves, right? They're not able to kind of see. And so I know when when we do assessments, when I do one in particular, um, and I'm, I'm meeting with someone that is uh, depressed and is really struggling, I will typically do the assessment and then I will inevitably have a family member join us and ask, how is she doing? How is you tell me, how is she doing? How is he doing? And often it's those people that are closest to that person that will say, not good, not, not going to work, difficulty getting up, not really taking care of themselves, not not eating well, all those things that we associated with, with uh, depression. And so family, and or at least those folks that are close to individuals really do see it um, typically. What I would recommend in terms of, a, especially if you're a friend, if, if you're um, an I'll work friend and then work in, um, is doing exactly what you might do if you knew that someone in your life was struggling with something physically. Let's say they had a virus or let's say they had um, a diabetes that was out of control or they had um, perhaps a, a diagnosis of some kind of cancer. Inevitably, you would call them up right? You would probably send a text. You would give them a buzz. You would give them a call and say, how can I be helpful to you? What can I do for you? Can I drop food off? Can I stop over? What can I be? What can it, do you need a ride to the doctor? 
How can I be helpful? And this is where we still see stigma kind of creeping itself in because we will comfortably do that when our friends are physically ill. We we second guess, we stumble, we worry when it comes to, to depression and anxiety. We don't typically say, hey, Jeannie, you don't seem yourself in the last several months. Are you all right? How can I be helpful to you? What, what can I do for you? So that's kind of the friend thing, right? Kind of moving itself in. As a family member, I think that your um, your example is, is really spot on. It's very hard to be in partnership with someone that's that's really classically and traditionally very, very depressed. It's very, very hard. In fact, um, you know, I look at kind of divorce statistics and I often wonder what role mental illness or emotional illness is playing in that. So I see these, these sort of marriages kind of fizzle, right? And, and things don't work out. And I wonder sometimes whether there is some kind of mental illness that's going on within the couple that they just didn't know how to handle. And so it broke, right? Um, and so I, I just wonder about that. I believe that there's a correlation there without question. I think it's our human nature to want to fix things. So if we mm -hmm. see someone is not performing their best, we want to jump in there and we want to say, well, have you tried this? Have you done mm -hmm. that? And I think that that, like you said, that can make friendships, marriages, parent-child relationships completely explode because we're not empathizing. We're not validating. We're not recognizing. Um, you know, this is an, an extremely painful disease, just as you mentioned, it could be cancer. It could be kidney disease. It mm -hmm. could be any of the physical things. So when we're saying to them, oh, well, just, you know, why don't you just get up on time? Why don't you just right. go for a walk? What, you know, if I were you, I would just are you eating right. Well, mm -hmm. here, some healthy food, you know, mm -hmm busy telling them how they are supposed to be behaving rather than hearing how they're feeling. And I think one of the best pieces of, of advice that I ever got, um, and just to let everyone know too, a very uh, close family member of mine passed away um, by suicide. And again, everybody was trying to fix him. Nobody sat down and, and just let him speak. And so we learned the acronym WAIT. Why am I talking? Mm -hmm. It is not our job to be talking at someone. Mm -hmm. Our job is to be empathetic, caring listeners, mm -hmm. to just let that person know that they can trust us and that we're here for them. We're not judging them. We're not trying to fix them. And um, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that I got um, when we were, you know, struggling with the reality of what happened to our family. You are so correct. It's really, it's, it's really two components. It's that asking how they're doing, right? Those open-ended questions and also statements that let it sit, meaning, wow, that must be really hard for you. And then zip shh, and let it dangle. And then someone will usually step in and say, yeah, it really is hard because blah, blah, blah. We tend to have a hard time hearing it and we tend to have a hard time sitting with it because you are, when you're sitting with someone that, with that level of depression, you are sitting and staring into the eyes of pain. You are sitting it, you are feeling it, you are oh, sitting yes. with it. And that's really, really hard for us to do. It's just so like, uncomfortable. You start like, it's oh, so God, uncomfortable. Where's the fire extinguisher? Where's the, right? Where's the, what can right. I do about this? Sitting is really hard. It's what we train with, in all honesty, when you train to be a clinician. That's 70% that's of the training. Can you sit, <laughs> right? Can you sort of sit with where your client is at, no matter where that is? And you're right, in a non-judgmental way, in a way that that keeps the dialogue opening. And some of those open-ended questions, again, that must be really hard for you. And then shh, be really quiet. <laughs> let them let them kind of sit. Yeah. 
hard. These are these are really hard and yet difficult, but common. And so these skills that that we're talking about now and these skills about about kind of leaning in and learning these skills, critical, critical to uh, to all relationships actually in life, no matter really no matter where you're talking about depression or you're just talking about relationships with each other. How are you doing? That must be hard for you. How are you really doing? And then being quiet. It's a, it's a classic uh, process that we use with couples that couples have a really hard time with because men want to rescue and fix, right? And I get that, you know, that's, that's sort of, it's sociological, it's actually mother nature. There's lots of reasons that that happens, but guys have a hard time just sort of sitting <laughs> with men in particular have a hard time with that. So Well, and I also think that it's really important for those of us who are not suffering to understand what that feeling is like. If we were to ask somebody, for example, my brother is going through chemotherapy right now. And he is able very clearly to tell me, well, you know, I'm really tired, whatever. And people that have mental illness, their symptoms do not readily flow right out of their mouth. A friend of mine who um, is ever so brave and has started a local support group for women who are suffering from depression. And I'm so proud of this friend. And I asked her, I said, you know, what are some of the ways that a clinically depressed person feels when they're at, at their very lowest? And she said, it's a level of exhaustion that cannot be explained. She said, you are beyond the description of tired. You're desperate for sleep, but your brain won't let you. Um, it's a lever- level of fatigue that almost feels painful to the bone. That's what she said. It's like she feels a physical pain in the core of her being that is just cannot be relieved by anything. There's no breath of fresh air, although it's important. There's no amount of sleep, although it's important. There's There's no amount of healthy nutrition that can make any of this disappear. It's just, it is an ache that is just so, um, I guess, primal. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It is. It is. And and I've heard it described. um, It's pain that comes from the inside out as opposed to the other way around, right? It's deep in you. And it's interesting. People don't know how to describe it because it, our, our language isn't attached. There's mm-hmm. no without question, and that's why I'm I'm really excited that that things like this podcast are happening because the very fact that we're going to have people for 45 minutes reflect on on mental health and reflect on what that feels like and what it's like to talk about and to watch the three of us talk about it. I, I we do lots of talks at Westburg and we do lots out in the community, and I always say to folks, go home and talk to your family and blame it on me. Go home and say, listen, I listened to this talk. It was kind of interesting. What do you think? Do you ever get sad? So we're now at the kitchen table with our kids, right? Do you ever get sad? What do you do when you get stressed? What do you do when you feel really upset? Where do you go? And then challenge, as we did before with with our couple example, parent example, ask the question and then zip. (laughs) Listen. Right. And, And one of the things that I learned was to validate by repeating what you mm-hmm. heard. I, what I hear you saying is, yep. mm-hmm. is that correct? Tell me more. That's another key phrase. Tell me Absolutely. more. Absolutely. Help me understand. Right. The other thing that I also want um, for people to recognize is, you know, I was at a funeral recently and the priest said, I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. And I am going to say to you, you know, people are asking, what could I have done? And he said, absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nothing. Um, we aren't that powerful to prevent somebody from dying of cancer, from dying from, uh, you know, 
any other heart disease or by suicide. None of us are all that powerful. Um, Jonah Hill has a documentary out. Have you guys seen this? I don't More than once. I've watched it multiple times. Yep. So good. And my biggest takeaway was he was like, you know, I was in so much pain. And he said, and I went to my friends and all they wanted to do was give me advice. And all I wanted to do was just have them listen to me. And I had to pay all of this money to go to my therapist. My (laughs) therapist would do nothing but listen to me. He said, I for advice and he wouldn't say anything. So, I mean, I think that's what we can all learn from is just, you know, stop with the advice giving, stop with the fix it, just be. There's something really important about just being, letting your friend be in that depressed state and letting yourself be in that position to just absorb some of that pain. You got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shout out to that that Netflix special though, by the way, well done. And I liked it a lot. Yeah. Michael, one, one quick question I have, mm. you know, similar to regular health, there's times when we need to go to our doctor because we've hit levels of, of dishealth. Mm. There's kind of things we can do, or at least like things I try to do. I try to eat healthy. I try to do some exercise every day. I try to do these things that hopefully keep me out of the doctor's office. Mm. You know, I'll go to my checkup, but, but I, I prefer not to be there. Is there similar techniques in mental health that we can do, whether in a social context or on our own, that we can do to hopefully, you know, try to ward off some of these things, maybe better control our stress, have better control over our emotions, better manage our relationships? You know, how does that fit into that stigma relationship? So, yeah, Jordan, great question. Two two things come to my mind. First of all, all the things that you're doing for your healthy body and your wellness are very similar list to what we would do for mental health. So keep doing that because that's that's absolutely related. And I think as a field, um, we've come so far, thank goodness, at, at understanding that there is not this this historically battle between the physical body and our emotional being. They are without question linked. And so keep doing all the things that you're doing um, in terms of eating and exercise and light and, and uh, being social to the extent um, that you can. I think the other thing that people can do is simply prioritize your own emotional well-being. I think that 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 we t- when we think about our lives, particularly in in certain areas of the country, and ours might be one of them, where we have this kind of very competitive push, 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 drive, drive, drive. We tend to think of the buckets in our lives, and we tend to think about our relationships. We tend to think about our career. We tend to think about maybe our homes our savings, our investments, our, our, our material items. And I rarely hear, hear people sort of reflect on and create a bucket that will say, how am I doing emotionally? What's my emotional life look like? What would I like it to look like? How would I, how would I want that to be? And so um, sometimes we see this when, um, when we get into a little bit of light trouble, right? A little bit of anxiety, a little bit of panic, maybe it's a new job, maybe it's a, a new relationship or, or um, an extension of a family. Let's say one of our kids uh, gets engaged or something like that. And we have to sort of figure out how to have a relationship with, with someone new as part of the system. Those are those opportunities where we're, where we're looking at ourselves and saying, all right, Am I easy to get along with? Like, how, how what, what role do I play in, in this family? What role do I play in this office? What role do I emotionally play um, in that? And so I think simply prioritizing it, making it just as important as physical, financial, career, 
making emotional life just as important. I think that alone and having us focus on it would would go a long, 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 long way. Can we have a poster made? And, <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I love and it. Billboard. I mean, I'm not joking. Uh, listen, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us today to help our community um, through this holiday season and beyond. And mostly, I really, I want you to keep doing what you're doing in this community and the surrounding communities, because wow, it is very, very impressive. Um, People were trying to reach out to some professional help at West Bergen. Where do they reach out to? Probably the easiest way is to uh, check out westbergen.org. That's our our, um, website. So please take a look and give us feedback because it really is a newly launched website. Um, But it's a brand new, uh, new, new information, newly launched material. Um, Everything is on there. There's also a bunch of helpful hints on there, a bunch of uh, things that um, you may never, ever need to be or want to be a client. Um, But there's some information on there that you can use um, to look at that emotional life bucket that we talked about earlier and make that just part of your focus. So thank you very, very much, both of you. I think you're you're both really special for having this conversation. Um, I, I think the podcast is an excellent idea to begin with in terms of your overall process. But to um, and, and I think at the at the podcast launch, I said, Jeannie, to you after that, I was looking forward to you. Um, what I love about the podcast is you're you're starting to lean into having some uncomfortable or difficult conversations that aren't so easy. And so this, in my mind, was one of them. And so thank you for um, helping us with stigma. Thank you for helping us with mental health, because the vision very fact that we could do this for 45 minutes together um, is gigantic, bigger than any of the three of us will realize. Thank you so much, Michael. I also want to remind all sure. of our listeners that uh, you can go to westbergen.org, not only learn about the organization, but also West Bergen uh, has a number of volunteer efforts uh, going on mm-hmm. throughout the year, which I definitely encourage people to check out and see what mixes well with either their schedule or, or something that they're looking to help out with. There's always stuff, some of it a lot of fun, a lot of it very kid-friendly. Uh, um, Absolutely. My daughter to uh, to a number of West Bergen volunteer events. And also, obviously, encourage everyone, if they can, to donate to the organization, to help it in its mission to provide mental health services in our communities. And, of course, also to let people know there's also um, a, a group called the Friends of West Bergen, and that's a group that kind of helps organize some of those volunteer efforts and and uh, some of the fundraisers that they put on throughout the year. So if you're looking for something to do to dip a toe in, in helping West Bergen, I think that's a great place to uh, to start as well. Michael, thank you so much for being part of our show today. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and experience. Uh, Jeannie? Great. And as they say, it takes a village. And I can't tell you, I am so pleased to have Michael Tazzoli and you, Jordan Kaufman, in my village. And until we meet again, y'all, go out and be kind and do good. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. So that's it, guys.